All right, well, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to Ephesians 5. We are going to finish Ephesians 5 this morning, and we are also going to finish our series uh, on marriage, Christ-centered marriage, and consider um, what now marriage is a beautiful picture of. And, and just to kind of let you in, maybe pull back the curtain a little bit to uh, my house on Sunday afternoons. Uh, generally, there, there's one main goal when we leave the church building, and it's get the kids to bed. Um, by, by the time we're rolling out of here, they're ready for nap time. They're hungry. They're, they're just ready and at that point. So we, we try to feed them. We try to get them to bed. Um, and, and generally, uh, after they get to bed and things kind of settle down, um, I'll, I'll ask Carrie, and as I have the past several weeks specifically in regards to this series, uh, did it sound like I was angry or hated women? And just felt like that was a question that I needed some feedback for. Because as we talk about the word submission and we talk about some of these things, there's been a lot of bad teaching about that. And there's been, I think, unfortunately at times, probably a lot of angry people that have just stood up and, and, and tried to communicate things that were probably unhelpful. So last Sunday, that scene plays out. We get the kids into bed and uh, the, the pizza's in the oven, and, and we're kind of waiting to, uh, to sit down and eat. And, and I was like, did it sound like I hated women? And he, she goes, nope, sounded like you hated men. <laughs> like, all right. So, men, I don't hate you. Uh, I, I think in thinking back, I, I could see where she would have gotten that. Uh, but however, I know that some of you are perhaps conspiring to dump Gatorade on me later. Um, and if that happens, hate might be a response. So just, just in full warning there, uh, but as we consider the, the beautiful picture that marriage is this morning, uh, guys, we're, guys, we're going to be talking about us a little bit more um, because it's nearly impossible to consider the picture that Paul paints for marriage and not also continue to understand that he is developing even more this theme of how husbands are to interact and relate to their wives. And so this morning, we're, we're going to weave in and out, if you will, um, between an understanding of the picture that marriage is of, as well as ways that here on earth we can apply that and hopefully have a picture that looks correct. And so week one, in the beginning of January, we, we worked through Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is created and defined by God. So that God may be glorified and humanity may flourish. There was a design of marriage and that design was intended to meet and accomplish its purpose. And you and I, we, we live in a world that design matches purpose. In week two, marriage has been under attack since before the fall and will continue to be attacked. I think and fully believe that what we saw in the invitation and temptation of the serpent to Eve was at the heart a temptation and a full-on attack on marriage. And we should not be surprised that marriage has continually been attacked since that point. And as I've said before, we don't have to go far in the book of Genesis to already see the big categories 
of the ways that marriage was undermined and, and in particular sexuality was now no longer expressed in a one flesh relationship. And those categories in the opening chapters of Genesis by and large match exactly the very same categories that we have in our society today. Well, Last week we walked, wor- worked through, walked through The beginning part of Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 25, marriage is faithfully expressed in a one-man, one-woman covenant relationship. And this morning we will consider through the rest of Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is ultimately a picture of Christ and the church, who we are told is His bride. It's one of the ways that the biblical writers express the relationship between the church and Christ. There's many metaphors used. Body will be another one used in the very passage we're in this morning. But bride is also one. And so we need to think well in regards to what marriage is ultimately a picture of. If I even wanted to summarize that last point a little bit more concisely, I think we could very easily do it this way. Marriage is a megaphone. Marriage is a megaphone. It is declaring something. And it was intended to do that. And I'm not speaking of just Christian marriage. I am speaking of marriage everywhere. And I think the text this morning will outline that for us and support that claim that that marriages that perhaps are outside of a, a Christian faith or understanding still are a megaphone for this ultimate picture of Christ and his church. It's part of this profound mystery that marriage represents, and Paul will walk us through that. And so uh, this morning we're going to consider this ultimate picture, this beautiful picture of what marriage ultimately points and declares of the megaphone that it is for us. So we're going to get into Ephesians 5, really start in verse 25 together and work our way through the end of the chapter. So would you pray with me? And then we'll go to the text together. Lord, we want to consider this morning the things that you have said in regards to marriage and what marriage represents, the picture that it, it paints. I've heard it described before as a parable. That marriage, marriage is telling an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. And God, I think your word teaches us exactly that. And so Lord, this morning as we wrap up this series, as we consider this beautiful picture that marriage is, God, I pray that, that there would be application on a horizontal level here and now for us in our relationships, whether married or unmarried, that we might, we might live faithfully and that we may engage thoughtfully. But Lord, we also need you to come and impress upon us this incredible truth that the stakes are so high in regards to marriage because of what it represents. And so God, I pray that you'd give us a deeper understanding of that. That we may be able to more fully understand this beautiful picture that marriage represents and just the profoundness of this human relationship that we experience and and live in and how it's it's an expression of a far more eternal and far greater relationship and so god help us to consider well the things that christ does for his church Lord, as we consider his love for us, I pray that you would come and you would meet with us in such a way that we may more fully love you. 
And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, last week we, in looking at what Paul says in regards to wives, which he says is similar to the church, the relationship that wives have with their husbands is a similar relationship that the church has with its Savior. We looked at the kind of submission that wives are to have, the direction of submission, and the reason for submission. The kind of submission was to your own husband. The Bible never anywhere speaks that women are subject to men by the very nature or virtue of their womanness. There is one gender relationship that is spoken of with the word submission, and that is with husbands and their own wives, or wives and their own husbands. And so it is not that submission means that women are a second-class breed of humanity that are subject to all men everywhere because they are women. That is completely unbiblical. There's a direction of submission. That direction is to their own husbands, and that direction is also vertically. It's as to the Lord. So women, you are called to willingly defer to your husband's headship which is in also a, willy, a willingly deferring to Christ's headship of the church. That your relationship with Christ is going to be expressed in part of your relationship with your husband. And thirdly, the reason for submission is this relationship that Christ has with his church as head and then the relationship that husbands have with their wives as Head, But again, head doesn't mean second class. It doesn't mean inferior. It's simply a recognition that there were roles and responsibilities given to Adam that were not given to Eve. And really, vice versa, vice versa there were roles and responsibilities given to Eve that were not given to Adam. And so there's a unique distinctiveness there between them. And in very similar ways, the church and Christ will have that relationship. And so then we get to verse 25, and now we begin to consider the commands of husbands, which are, are, are similar to now what Christ does. And verse 25, I think, is one of the most haunting verses in all of the Bible, and one of the most haunting commands for us, for me as a man. Read along with me. Husbands, love your wives as or just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
in similar ways with what we looked at in regards to wives and the kind of submission, the direction of submission, and the reason for submission, Paul will work through the same things in regards to men. The kind of love men are to have, the direction of that love, and the reason for that love, or the purpose for that love. In regards to the kind of love, look back with me at verse 25. The kind of love husbands are to have for their wives is a love that is just as Christ has for the church. It is a self-sacrificing love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up. That is language that speaks to the self-sacrificial love of Christ that led Him to the cross to lay down His life for His bride, the church. The kind of love that Christ has for the church is a self-sacrificing love. It is men the kind of love we are called to now love our wives with to the same degree. The language and the words just as tell us that as Christ has loved in the very same way we are to love. And marriage is a megaphone. And when I lay down my rights and wants and desires before Carrie, I am expressing and acting as Christ did for me when he laid down his rights and died on the cross. There was a kind of love that brought Christ to earth, a kind of love that led him to set his face to Jerusalem where he walked foretelling his death in full acknowledgement of what was going to happen and then climbed on the cross and allowed himself to be crucified. That love was a self-sacrificing love. Men, when we love our wives that way, we are declaring to a world a Savior who loves his bride that way. There's a direction of love. The tail end of verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a direction of Christ's love and it is for her. You may say his love is a particular love. And in very similar ways, my love for my wife needs to be a particular love. It needs to be a love that's not expressed with anybody else in that way. There is a direction of love. And Christ's direction of love was for his church. And he gave himself up for her. And marriage is a megaphone. And when I set my love and focus my love on my wife as God intends, I am expressing and acting as Christ did for the church when He gave Himself up for her, when He came and sought her. The text here tells us that Christ gave Himself up for her. There's a self-sacrificial love there and there's a direction that that love is expressed and that is for His bride, the church. And there is a reason for love. Beginning in verse 26 through verse 27, we will see the words that or so that. And those words function to set off for us an understanding that there is a purpose clause that is going to be communicated. So we have Paul having made just a grand statement. Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for the church. Now, here is the purpose 
for which he did that. Here is the reason for which he did that. At the very beginning of verse 26, you see the first purpose. That he might sanctify her or make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so the first purpose, the first reason for Christ's love for the church where he gave himself up for her was to set her apart. It was to make her holy. It was to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now what is this water and what is this washing? I do not believe this water and this washing is the act of baptism. The act of baptism celebrates the washing that has already occurred. The washing of water with the word and the word word that Paul uses there is a very specific spoken word. It is actually a different word. I'm going to say that word. There you go. A lot. It's actually a different word than what he uses in other places where in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's the word logos. The word he uses in Ephesians 5 here is not that word. And so logos can generally refer to all of God's Word and certainly can specifically refer to Christ as the incarnate Word of God, but the word Paul uses here is a specific spoken word. It's, it's, it's the gospel word, that when somebody places their faith and trust in Christ for salvation, they have been spiritually cleansed. They have received a spiritual bath. They have been regenerated as Titus, or as Paul will tell Titus in chapter 3, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Those of you that have celebrated communion with us before in all three parts of our communion, one of the things that is often read and said from John 13 in regards to foot washing is Peter's objection to Christ washing his feet. And, and, and Christ says, no, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter's conclusion with that is, well, then wash it all. And Jesus' response is, no, you've had a bath. You just need your feet washed. That's this washing. And very similar language is used there in John 13 as Paul uses here that this washing of the water of the Word is, is, is what happens. It's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in our hearts where we become born again when we place our faith and trust in Christ. What Jacob just did was celebrate that. That water didn't wash anything. It celebrated the washing he's already had. The first reason, the first purpose that Paul gives us for Christ's coming and giving himself up for his church was that he might sanctify her. He might set her apart. The second reason, the second purpose in verse 27 is so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The second purpose that Christ came and gave himself up for the church for was to present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing. This word present actually can be and is a word that speaks to the creating of something. The creating of something and the setting of that something before you. And it speaks to what Christ has done where he, he came and he sought the church and he, he, he birthed the church with the purpose of one day having the church fully set before him without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, if we look at ourselves and we look at each other, we can probably conclude there, there's a few spots. There's a few wrinkles. Those any such things haven't been fully taken care of yet. But you have a purpose of what Christ came to do expressed. One of the things that we need to understand is how marriage functioned in this time period. And there was a betrothal period of time that was before the ceremony and the consummation of the marriage in which you were legally wed. We refer to it as engagement. You've You've officially pledged, you've exchanged a ring, you've asked the question, you've gotten your reply, the plans now get put into full force. Well, they would have legally been married. Engagements in our society can be broken, and it's, it's heartbreaking when they happen, but there's no legality that needs to take place when it does happen. But in the first century, there would have been legal measures to that would have been taking place. And we understand that from what we are told in regards to Joseph and Mary. Where Joseph, being an honorable man, decided to divorce his wife quietly. Well, Mary and Joseph had not lived yet together. They had not had sex together. They were in this betrothal period. But the, the breaking of that relationship because of what Joseph perceived to be Mary's infidelity and, and immorality had to have legal action taken to it. And so that gets applied to an understanding of Christ in the church and that we are betrothed to Christ and one day there will be a consummation of that, a celebration of that. Revelation 19 speaks very, very specifically regarding that and that there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of the bride from every tongue, tribe, nation, all those people you see everybody else on Facebook saying they don't like right now, they're going to be around the throne if they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're going to gather. Christ is going to gather them to himself and there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And one day that church and you and I as the individual members of it will be spotless without stain or blemish, spot or wrinkle. And in verse 27, we're told the second purpose, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Splendor is actually, and can be translated as well, glory. He wants to present the church to himself gloriously. Paul gives us the third reason and purpose at the tail end of verse 27, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now those words are words that have already been mentioned at one time in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 4. If you just want to flip a page real briefly, you will see those words. In chapter 5, the word blemish can be translated blameless. 
it will be rendered blameless in chapter 1, verse 4. It's actually the same word, blemish, blameless. It's the exact same word. It just gets translated in a different way. But we're told in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, even as He, God the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And so God the Father chose us, the church, in Him before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve were on the scene, before God said, and then there was, He had chosen for the purpose that His church might be holy and blameless. And look exactly what Christ comes to accomplish in verse 27, so that she might be holy and blameless. The third purpose of Christ's coming, the third reason of Christ's coming, was to accomplish the very things the Father had determined would happen. Marriage is a megaphone. It speaks to this greater reality, this beautiful picture. And we are told in verses 26 and 27 that there was a reason, a purpose for Christ's love. To summarize those points we have in 25, Christ died for the church. And He did so for the reason to set the church apart, to sanctify her, to make her holy. And He did that for the reason to present Himself, the church, gloriously or in splendor and he did that to make her holy and blameless or without blemish which thus fulfills the father's purpose in his choosing it's been rightly said and we celebrated it this 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 morning in regards to and with baptism that the trinity was intimately involved in each part of our salvation Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 break that down in incredible detail. But it's been rightly said and summarized that the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. It can be a helpful way of understanding what happens in regards to the work of the Trinity in salvation. And we see two of those parts functioning here and now in our text this morning, that the Father planned for the church to be holy and blameless, and Christ came for the purpose of making such thing happen. And God's plans don't fail. There was a kind of love, there was a direction of love, there was a reason or purpose for love. Paul in verse 28 returns and has us again think of the kind of love. And here's where we kind of weave back and forth because now he begins again to address husbands. In verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So notice what Paul is doing. He is giving husbands the specific instruction to love your wife as Christ loves the church. 
Love your wife as your own body because Christ loves the church as his own body. And you have these metaphors now that have been introduced where the church is the bride of Christ, but she's also the body of Christ. And in the um, tail end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul says that, that Christ is the head of the church, his body. And here we have that fleshed out more and more that as the head of his body that we have having placed our faith and trust in Christ, our members of, He nourishes and cherishes us. And our marriages are megaphones. And husbands, you and I have been called in the same way to love our wives as our own bodies. Because Christ loves us that way and He does so with a nourishing and a cherishing love. It's interesting that Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. That's really an inverting of what may have been a more natural way to say that. The more natural way would have been, he who loves himself will love his wife. But he inverts that. Now he who loves his wife loves himself. Paul begins to now express the one flesh teaching of the scriptures and that husbands and wives have been so united by God that they are one flesh and they should treat and care for one another and specifically husbands to wives in that way. I think of some of the ways that I love myself in ways that um, should be extended to carry and these aren't profound ways, they're just ways that I was reflecting this week. Um, I like to carve out time to exercise and I need to do the same for her. I need to, I need to go one-on-three with my defense strategy and, and take the kids and let her have some time. Whether that's hitting the treadmill or whether that's going outside. You know, I, baby, I, I got the kids. You just go. And the same could be said for her. Time in the Word. And lately, that's just kind of functioned where uh, I'll get the kids and they'll be downstairs with me and she gets about 20, 30 minutes up in her bed and, and the alarm has gone off, and she'll just kind of pretend to be asleep, and so the kids just don't go in there, and, and she gets her time with the Lord. And then I was thinking of it even more, and thinking about just the gobs of coffee that I drink each morning. It's like, well, if I love myself with coffee, I probably should be extending that onto my wife. And I've been trying over the last couple of days, at that 7.30 mark, when her alarm goes off, that I can get her a cup of coffee with all of her creamer and ready to go for her, and she can, she can have that time And there's a prioritization in my life for her that that gets just real practical in ways to to nourish and cherish, in ways to cultivate and guard, in ways that say, hey, you are are so important and you know what, your your desire to, to be fit and your desire to have time with the Lord and your desire for a break from the kiddos, those those are so important that you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna do those things so that you can pull back and have that time. We're told to love our wives as Christ loves the church. He nourish, nourishes and cherishes our church. And Paul is now making his argument based on the one flesh nature of husbands and wives. And he begins to now unpack that even further in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. 
And Paul quotes from Genesis 2 in the garden where the Lord is officiating the first marriage ceremony and beginning to describe the result of the design that he has purposed. And he continues, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you think about it, this mystery is incredibly profound. And it's not just profound in the sense that Christian marriage reflects the reality of Christ in the church. I think one of the parts of it that is profound is the fact that all marriage reflects Christ and the church. And what Paul means by mystery is not something that we can't understand, but something that had not been understood before, which now has been revealed. There is a fuller understanding now that has been Uh, that has taken place now that Christ has come and has laid down his life for the church that in the Old Testament they didn't have the picture of Christ in the church fully to extrapolate the teaching of one flesh to fully get this and so it was a mystery but now this mystery has been revealed and I think this profound mystery is one that echoes through all of us because we've all been created and we all long and desire for this covenantal love Because if you think about it, nothing in regards to what Christ does for the church is contractual. It's by grace that we're saved. It's not because we did a whole bunch of stuff. We didn't come and do our part so that he then can fulfill his obligations of the contract. No, his love's covenantal. And because it's covenantal, there's no breaking of it. It's not contractual. There's no ending terms to his love. And this is the very type of love that is expressed in marriage vows regardless of whether that marriage ceremony was a religious or Christian one or whether it wasn't. And I, this past week, found on a website 30 different sample wedding vows that covers all faiths, all cultures, religious, non-religious, you name it, it was in there. And you know what I consistently saw in all but one of them? Till death do us part. For better, for worse. Do you know what I didn't see in any of them? I'm going to love you until this goes bad and then I'm out. Nobody says that. I dug into a little bit of some statistics on prenuptial agreements, which is an agreement you make in a contract you sign before you get married that says, when this fails, here's how we divide everything. Apparently, only 5% of divorces have a prenuptial agreement in place. It means that 95% of people getting married are getting married for better or for worse. Till death do they part. There's an echo across the souls of humanity, whether Christian or not, that speaks to this. And you think about even the types of of movies and and things that men and, and women are interested in. This echo reverberates and it's expressed equally, but it's it's also respect expressed differently because we're profoundly enraptured by stories of love and commitment. Now, guys, for us, often that's dude blows up everything, saves the world, gets the girl. I mean, we're profoundly enraptured by that idea of conquering and bringing restoration of heroic stories. We are moved by those because we've got a greater hero. 
and his name is Christ. And there's a profound mystery that echoes in the souls of us as men that longs to be like that man who came and conquered. And so even in my little son, if you give him anything that's 18 inches or longer, it is a sword. And you better watch out because he's coming after you. And this echoes throughout the stories of romantic comedies and princess fairy tales and all of that. And where a guy's story, might, what might move a guy is guy blows everything up, saves the world. Like girls are going to connect with, well, I was one day tying my shoe in Central Park and my long-lost love was walking his dog and he tripped over me and we, we then exchanged letters. And, and, and it, but there's this idea of covenant love that I've been found and my life has now been pledged to another for better or for worse, till death do we part. And this echo reverberates through humanity. This is not just a Christian thing. This is a gospel thing. And God has placed in the hearts of everybody this longing for this covenantal love because He has created us for a need and a desire for Christ to love us with that covenant love and for us to place our faith and trust in Him as that conquering hero who has taken the devil to the woodshed and disarmed him. And marriage is a megaphone. In our marriage conference this past weekend, one man said it this way, marriage is embedded in the culture as a gospel testimony that is always making a statement. The only question is whether it's good or not. See, the stakes are so high. The stakes aren't just horizontal stakes. The stakes reverberate into eternity. Marriage speaks to and declares the wonder of the gospel. Marriage is a witness for the gospel. And you and I as his church, we, we were commanded to long for the day that Christ comes back and, and fully consummates, takes the bride to himself and we celebrate and we share a meal and then we, we dwell with him and he will be our God bodily there in his presence and we will dwell with him and we will be his people. That's this great hope that we set our eyes on that we look forward to in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. And it's what crescendos to the very end of Revelation 22 where the Apostle John in writing these things says, Even so, Lord, come. Let it be. And it's because marriage isn't the end of anything. It's the beginning of everything. When you think about it, when you stand with your, with your spouse or the one you're engaged to on, on the altar, it, you're, you're looking forward to everything that's ahead. And I know, I know men, and, and probably, and, and I, I will say this, men shamefully will joke about marriage being the end of their lives. 
but it's the beginning of everything. And for you and I as believers, when Christ comes and we are united with Him, it is the beginning of everything. It is the beginning of an eternity in His presence. It is the beginning of us enjoying the new heavens and the new earth and everything that the Scriptures foretell of the reality that waits for those who trust in Christ as their Savior. And so we rightly should long for His return. We rightly should long for Him to come and should conclude, even so, Lord, come. And I asked the band this morning to lead us in a song. You may be familiar with it, and if you are, you're more than welcome to join in. You're more than welcome to sing along. For those of you that may not, you will see the words on the screen. But the song and the chorus says, Like a bride waiting for its groom, we will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for its king, we sing, even so, come. That is to be our cry as the church because this marriage that we experience horizontally is a picture of a greater reality. And when that happens, it is not the end of anything. It is the very beginning of everything. And so as they lead us, will you stand and we'll have a song that we'll sing together with each other after this.